Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. And we are your tour guides through a scenic forest of media growth, indigenous to our streaming landscape. Fritz, what have you got for us this week? I got a couple of good ones. Although, as people will realize, we're going to do a garage sale of great media ideas today. This is my Pri- first one. Everything's priced to go. Yeah. This is a limited series on Netflix. It's a documentary called The Pharmacist. The first item is a combination of true crime and a corporate corruption investigation, all being done by one man. He's Dan Schneider. He's a pharmacist in St. Bernard Parish, which is near New Orleans. He worked at a small little community pharmacy southeast of New Orleans. His 22-year-old son, Danny, was killed in a drug deal gone bad late one night in the Lower Ninth Ward, a very dangerous subdivision of New Orleans. This is one of those poverty-stricken urban areas where white people are afraid to go, and everybody is afraid to snitch. So Dan Schneider was pretty much on his own in finding his son's killer. The cops got nowhere. They had no witnesses, no evidence. So Dan goes on a mission, and he and his family stapled flyers to phone poles in the area. They canvassed neighbors. An African-American preacher was so afraid for Dan's safety in the Lower Ninth that he escorted him through the streets so nothing would happen to them while they were investigating. Ultimately, with superhuman, many would say, obsessive determination, he was able to solve his son's case to the wonderment of everybody in the community. And then the story expands. Dan, as a working pharmacist, started to notice that opioid use was spiking in the St. Bernard Parish area. His interest is obviously fueled by the loss of his son to drugs. His son was buying crack, but drug addiction in general was a pet thing of his. Customers were coming into the pharmacy, getting prescriptions of 40 to 80 milligram Oxycontin with no visible source of pain. They're tap dancing in the store. He gathers some sales data from his pharmacy and others and discovers that the majority of these OxyContin prescriptions are coming from the same doctor. The doctor was operating what's called a pill mill. And Dan decides he's going to bring this woman down. So he tries to engage the FBI. He tries to engage the DEA. They dismiss him. So he goes on another lone mission, just like the one for his son. I won't tell you any more, but attention expands to include the manufacturer of OxyContin, a company that's been in the news a lot lately, Purdue Pharmaceuticals. It dives into their sales techniques, completely setting aside the addictive qualities of this drug, trying to get doctors to sell it. OxyContin is, is, is like strong heroin in pill form. This is a, really stark look at the American opioid crisis. Opioids have killed 450,000 Americans, which is almost as many as COVID. And if you're interested in this, I I would uh, recommend another documentary, Dr. Feel Good. It's the story of William Elliot Hurwitz, one of the most prolific pill distributors in American history, and how he was brought down. Weezy. Wow. So I would say in the genre of crime-fighting pharmacists, this is... At the end of it, you find yourself very conflicted about this man because his obsession was so deep that he was endangering not only his life, but the life of his teenage daughter and the life of his wife. And they begged him, please stop. You're not going to have closure at the end of this. 
And uh, it's all you're going to do is endanger the family. But he couldn't. He, it was literally uh, a, a deep, deep obsession with him. And many say, you know, he he shed light on this awful problem, but in a close, personal way, not everybody agreed with his methods. It's really interesting. I mean, you, you have great empathy for this guy, but you say to yourself, where would you have stopped so as not to endanger your family? Well, I think when you lose a child, you may lose all sense of reason. Perspective, you, exactly. You I may agree. feel like, as, as a father, I let him down, and therefore I have to save the rest of the world. Yeah. Well, there's that too. And, uh, and he even says that exact line. Like, I wish I could have been there to save you. Why couldn't I save you from this? Because his father recorded a lot of his little internal monologues. He just ran a tape recorder about his thoughts. They were sort of a recorded diary, and it was very effective. And um, he, uh, he, he was a dogged personality, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to kids, they are their own people and uh, we have good intentions i'm not a parent but you're a parent but we have as long as you know that you've had good intentions you can't take you can't take on that burden of being responsible for everything they do and everywhere they go we can't you can't no. follow them no you're exactly right and, and one of the one of the downsides to his mission was that the family and him or he most of all was not able to go through a normal grieving process mm. because they 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 couldn't bring the case to full closure. And without the full closure, not closure emotionally of losing a son, but closure in the case and all the te technical parts of the case. And so they were unable to mourn this loss for three or four years uh, after the death of their son. So it's sort of uh, delayed their grieving process. And you find yourself really feeling sorry for the daughter and the mother mm -hmm. because they want to be supportive of Dan. They understand why he's doing it, but they're afraid and they're heartbroken that we're going to go too far with this. And hopefully they got some closure through the making of the documentary because that can be uh, healing. Oh, well. yeah. I guess it's a fairly, a lot of streams on this documentary is interesting. Yeah. I'm, I, I watched, I think, the first part of it, but now you're kind of reminding me that I needed to get back to that. It's interesting that Netflix doesn't do a good enough job of reminding you what you, what do you think? You know, you get these yeah. emails from Netflix, mm -hmm. like, what's your opinion? Hey, back off, Netflix. Let me watch. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go with uh, my first pick, Fritz. Okay. And it's super chick. So I hope you're okay with this. I'm ready. It's Firefly Lane book and movie. So this is the story of what happens when the coolest girl in the world moves in across the street and wants to be your best friend. Firefly <laughs> Lane tells the story of two very different girls who make a pact to be friends forever. In the storytelling, however, it feels like they spend most of the book dissatisfied with themselves and envying one another. So this is not my favorite Kristen Hanna book. Um, she, you may recall on a previous show I mentioned she wrote... The Nightingale, which is about two heroically brave sisters during World War II, soon to be a movie starring the sisters Fanning in December of this year. Wow. Look for it. it it's uh, That is a great book, The Nightingale. Kristen Hanna also wrote a book I spoke of previously called The Four Winds about a boldly determined woman leading her family through the Dust Bowl. And these works of historical fiction resonated in a more satisfying way with me. 
Firefly Lane ranges in time from the 1970s through the early 2000s, and it reads more soapy and less importantly to me. Cut to the 10-hour Netflix adaptation, which does not even make its way through the entire book, and you know how I have been spending my week. 10 hours is not enough time because this adaptation put the book into a blender, added divorces, hookups, pregnancies, emotional infidelity, a gay brother, and set it all on liquefy. The series stars Katherine Heigl and Sarah Chalky, and the book tells its story in a linear fashion. The miniseries bounds between decades, a la This Is Us, with a jarring abandon. In order to figure out where you are, you have to memorize haircuts. There are so many differences between book and movie that it would spoil both for me to go into any detail. Chalky and Heigl are fun to watch. So if you enjoy strong, soapy female characters, then go for it. And there may be a season two because there is still so much story to tell. And Kristen Hanna has written a sequel to Firefly Lane, which is called Fly Away. I think I am full up on this story, but you may feel inspired to read on. And so I invite you to do so. I like historical fiction because even if it's not verbatim how uh, uh, various events went down, it sort of introduces you to an era. And if you had no exposure to that era, um, it's uh, it's a cool thing. My first uh, exposure to historical fiction was the book Lincoln by Gore Vidal. I wrote it. Yeah. I read it like twenty years ago, yeah. and he manufactured the dialogue, but. You, you have to look at the overview and how he introduced you to the inner workings of the Lincoln White House. It was fantastic. And his dialogue was funny and it was compelling. And so I think there's a real purpose for those things. I like them. Yeah, no, I love it. It's my That's my favorite form of fiction. Like, I have to feel like I'm learning something. I mean, I do love a great story, so I can get hooked into YA novels. I'm going to talk about one uh, coming up here on the show, but I, I can get hooked into a great story. But there has to be some sort of theme that that kind of resonates with you or that helps you see the world in a, in a way that is enlightening, you know, mm -hmm. for me to really got, kind of be in. What mm -hmm. else have you got, Fritz? Okay. I'm going to talk about another streaming documentary on Prime called The Brothers Warner. Uh, I'm obsessed with anything having to do with Hollywood history, and this is an essential piece of Hollywood history. It's a documentary about the four Warner Brothers. It's written and directed and narrated by Harry Warner's granddaughter, Cass Warner. Now, the Warner Brothers were Harry and Albert and Sam and Jack. This is the classic immigrant story. They were Polish Jews. Their father arrived in the United States in 1887. Their real name is Wonk Skolosser. And in 1903, they bought a used movie projector, invested $150, and began showing movies in mining towns around Pennsylvania and Ohio. It was the old Nickelodeon process. Movies like Life of an American Fireman and The Great Train Robbery, they showed over and over again. Then they opened their first theater called The Cascade in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Then Warner Brothers Pictures Incorporated in 1918 and the rest is history. What set them apart from other film companies was their bravery. In 1926, Harry Warner bought the Vitaphone Company, which married sound to film. Everybody told him this is a waste of an investment and waste of time. 
And they turned out to be desperately wrong because it led to the jazz singer with Al Jolson that completely changed the movie industry with only really a few minutes of sound on that film. And it was the greatest grossing film all the way up until Gone with the Wind. And they wanted to do films also. And this is why I sort of got my attention raised at this point in the documentary. They wanted to do films that were not only entertaining, but also had a social conscience. They were the first studio to do a movie about Nazi Germany. It was a movie called Confessions of a Nazi Spy. The whole rest of the industry freaked out. They advised against doing anything that was going to anger Germany because Germany was such a... Matter of fact, the biggest part of European sales for films, but they did it anyway. And all of those great 1930s Warner Brothers gangster pictures were really about more than gangsters. They were about gritty, violent reality that showed the underbelly of society, and there was a social purpose to that. Now, all of the brothers had hugely different personalities. Some egos were bigger than others, but a Shakespearean example of family betrayal and brotherly backstabbing happened between the Warner brothers. They had all reached a point where they decided to sell the business. Everything was changing. It was time to get out, time to retire. So they sold the company to a bank in Boston. The next day, Jack Warner, unbeknownst to his brothers, bought back the company from the bank and became the studio head and didn't have any competition from his brothers. The other brothers had no idea this was going to happen. And it really was an, uh, uh, an incredible example of uh, backstabbing. Fast forward, the company gets sold a couple of times after that. Now it's Warner Media, this conglomerate, AT&T, CNN, HBO, Time Warner Cable, and uh, the rest is history. If Some awkward Passover dinners. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I... I I want to make a comment that one of the Warner Brothers made, and uh, I, I'll be delicate about this because I don't want to violate anybody's sensitivities, but I think it was Harry Warner made a comment about Jews in the entertainment business. He said, Jews own the companies, Catholics regulate the companies, Protestants buy the product, which I just thought was brilliant. Because, you know, the Catholics had all the codes and, and, and they were always trying to please these Catholic right. legion of decency people. Yeah. And amazing. Now, if you're interested in Hollywood history, I also recommend Moguls and Movie Stars. It's a seven-part series on TCM. Absolutely. I love that stuff. Yeah. So this next story sort of dovetails with what you were uh, just describing with the kind of like those imminent changes in the movie industry and the studio system and all that. So after we had Tony Dow on our show from Leave it to Beaver, I went and joined a Leave it to Beaver fan group on Facebook. And when you join groups on Facebook, you just learn like a ton. Like people are in on the cellular level of things. You learn all kinds of detailed details <laughs> of what all went on on the set or what all went on, you know, behind the scenes and stuff. And we're talking about a show that was made some 60 years ago. So what's interesting about Leave it to Beaver lore is that since a lot of people that were in the cast were children at the time, they're in their 70s and 80s now. So they're just mm -hmm. ready and able to talk about it all. Whereas a lot of cast members from shows in that time period have since passed on. So I was led by this uh, fan group to Jerry Mather's website. 
And on his website, his mother tells a lot of memories, which is interesting because she was an adult at the time her son was a child. So she tells this story. It reveals a little known story behind the casting of Hugh Beaumont as Ward Cleaver. And in the article, um, she describes how Jerry, her son Jerry, who's maybe six years old at the time, and Hugh Beaumont played a father and son in a commercial film for a cemetery park. It's like a Hallmark commercial, but it lasts like 20 minutes, right? So it's touching and loving and all these things and like remember to buy your cemetery plot, you know, while we're here. So, so during their day on the set, Hugh was lamenting the lack of work in film for actors as the industry adjusted to the television age. He was actually thinking of changing careers to support his family. He had three kids. And Jerry's mother told him about a pilot that Jerry had just shot where the producers had decided to recast the big brother and the father. That night, her son Jerry prayed that the actor he had worked with that day would become his TV father on the new series. When Jerry mm. walked in, yeah, when Jerry walked in for his first day of rehearsals on Leave to Beaver, he was thrilled to see Hugh Beaumont as Ward Cleaver. That's a great and story. For your entertainment, here on YouTube is that very industrial film for a cemetery in which you will find the first appearance together of Hugh Beaumont and Jerry Mathers as not the beaver. It's for Rose Hills Memorial Park, and uh, you can find it right here at this link. Wow. Now, do Tony and Jerry interact with those fan pages at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what's cool about these types of fan pages. I mean, this is the only one I've joined. Most of the fan pages that I am a part of have to do with the cow sills and uh, the Letterman. So people in these fan pages tend to have somewhat of an access to the people that they're fanning. So especially if it's not, I mean, if it were, let's say if it were like a BTS fan page, I would say no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get to talk to the guys. But in 50 years, you will, because they'll just be sitting around Facebook kind of reliving the grand old days. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's like 60 years since this show was made. And so people feel like, yeah, and the show runs constantly on MeTV. And so there's every day they're talking about the episode that ran that day and they'll have details, you know, behind the scene or someone will speak to the guy who played Larry Mondello and have like a whole paragraph of Larry's memory of that day on the set. So it's really fun. Well, I'll tell you, I got a taste of that golden past uh, rabid fandom situation with my friend Bruce Bilson. I don't know if you ever met him. He directed uh, he started as an AD on The Andy Griffith Show oh. and ended up directing many of the episodes. He and I were bike riding partners, and he continued to ride bikes with me every day for an hour and a half till he was 92 years old. Cool. And then it was no longer possible for him to do it. But every year, because he had scripts and anecdotes and personal memories, every year he would invite it to what was called Mayberry Days <laughs> in Andy Griffith's hometown in North Carolina. And oh, he said, awesome. you have no idea. Thousands of people come to this thing every year, and they have several of the convention areas in town set up so uh, people who guest starred in, in an episode or two can come and sign pictures, and they'll have little symposiums on how shows were created and uh, all, all that kind of stuff stuff but they've done it every year for like 30 years and these people come every year and they're they have lookalikes and they have parades where you sit in the back of a 1955 chevy and you, you ride through town 
And uh, it, it's, uh, is that it right there? Wow, that's spectacular. But anyway, uh, <laughs> there they are. There they Look at them. They're all in the back of those old cars. But I mean, it, it resonates with people. And as you say, I think there's a new market now with MeTV and all these other streaming services. Yeah. And it's getting exposed to like a second and third generation of people. Well, see, and also for it's just like anything else with the Internet. Like we used to watch and enjoy these things in isolation. And, you know, you, we would at my dinner table, we would recount for my mother that day's episode of I Love Lucy. Mm -hmm. She was not an interested participant. <laughs> OK, so if we had been able to join to join an I Love Lucy fan group instead of boring my mother with how Lucy was supposed to be learning her lesson, um, it probably we would have, you know, would have had a, a more willing audience but yeah when you when you love the thing you want to talk about the thing and now the internet brings all those people together and so people that love leave it to beaver or i love lucy or the andy griffith show and those were three of the best shows so there's mm -hmm. a lot to talk about they were just really well done shows and they really hold up and they're you see things in them and as an adult like leave it to beaver to me was a show about parenting now that i'm an adult it was a show about parenting it was teaching parents what their children are feeling and how ch parents have to respect that. And so while these kind of like this conduit between like Beaver and like in between child and adult, and he was able to sort of say, hey, dad, you know, Beaver's just embarrassed, you know, to help parents understand what their children are feeling. Because I think part of becoming a parent is you callous over those feelings because they're so raw that if you still experience them, you wouldn't be able to raise your children. You'd be too devastated. So... Mm -hmm. It's a gentle Yeah, and reminder. they would look in on conversations between Wally and Beaver in their bedroom, and Beaver would be revealing himself to his older brother, and his older brother would give him some sage advice and then go tell the parents. Or, is, yeah, yeah, he'd decide what, <laughs> Wally yeah. always had to decide which information to divulge yeah. and which mm -hmm. information that he should really keep to himself as a loyal brother. But uh, it's just, it's a great show to rewatch as an adult if you haven't seen it since you were a child. Awesome. What else and, you got so what's next, Fritz? What what else? Have you All got? right, I, I just want to talk about some odds and ends. This is the uh, this is the buffet portion of our show. Yum. I, I've only started this book, but it, it goes back to my obsession with Hollywood history. This is a book called Shooting Midnight Cowboy. It's written by Glenn Frankel. Glenn Frankel wrote books about the Searchers and High Noon. the The complete title is Shooting Midnight Cowboy: Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation and the making of a dark classic. Now, full disclosure, I, I liked the performances in Midnight Cowboy. It was, very, it was a very disturbing movie to me, and the rest of the world felt so too, because it was the first X-rated movie ever to uh, win Oscars. And, uh, but I, I was drawn to the performances. I mean, I, I think Dustin Hoffman did the greatest work of his life. And, uh, you know, what's his name? I, his main, John name, Voight. John Voight blanks. I blank on his name because of his politics. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, two of their greatest performances. But there is some, it's a movie that includes it. And this is what gave it its X rating. Some, some very violent, very dark, um, gay sex interludes in there. And then when you read this book, and I'm only about a third of the way through, it, it gives why that topic was important to the writer. The writer of the novel that it was based on was James Herlihy, 
who was a friend of Anais Nin and some of the hot writers of the time and had a couple of plays on Broadway and was directed by John Schlesinger, who was a British director of documentaries before he got into feature films. But they were both closeted gay men and both had experience in that sordid, dark, gritty world of anonymous sex in the Times Square area, going into bathrooms and all that. Now, this isn't, that's not the whole topic of the book, but at least gives you the world uh, that Hurley, he created this novel around, which led to this amazing film and a pivotal film in uh, film history. But uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It makes you understand the whole point. Okay, full disclosure, I've never seen that movie because it came out when I was a kid and I've, I've never liked disturbing things. So I've kind of shied yeah. away for a lot, a lot of these things that, that are just part of our cultural landscape like, like that and five easy pieces and you know famous movies that were kind of like scary, shockingly disturbing when I was whatever, a kid or whatever. I still haven't seen. So what is Midnight Cowboy about? Midnight Cowboy is about a guy that, you know, he's like the hot shot in a Texas town, uh, John Voight, and he's going to go to New York to seek fame and fortune. And he's going to do that by becoming a, uh, a hustler, a male escort. And while he comes to town to try to make money with old wealthy ladies and poor uh, closeted homosexuals in the back of X-rated movie houses. He meets Dustin Hoffman that becomes his friend. And it really, the, the, the quality part of the film is the relationship between Hoffman and John Voight and how they rely on one another to survive this awful landscape, which was New York pre Rudy Giuliani cleaning the place up. And, um, it's, uh, the performances are spectacular. Dustin Hoffman is, uh, really amazing. So it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but if if you realize the importance of this film and film history, this book sort of gives you uh, the groundwork for why it was even uh, filmed. Mm -hmm. So how you know how these concepts yeah. came to people is that so yeah. like people write what you know, and so this was something yeah, that they were familiar exactly. with, especially when you had when being gay was something that a lot of people had to keep closeted if they wanted to have a career. Yeah, there wasn't a choice. My next pick is Moxie, book and movie. And you know how much I love watching uh, a movie that's an adaptation of a book or a miniseries. I just love seeing how they interpret it. And like lately, they've really kind of been making a lot of changes to movies that are based on books. It seems it seems to me that adaptation is like going further and further creative. Okay, so let's start with the book. Moxie is a YA novel by Jennifer Matthew. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but it's M-A-T-H-I-E-U, in which an unlikely teenager starts a feminist revolution at a small town Texas high school. Inspired by her mom's rebel youth, our hero Vivian begins publishing a zine, which is a uh, kind of like a, hand, a handmade magazine in response to the blatant sexism in her Texas high school, which includes the worship of rude and vulgar football gods, the humiliating public ranking by the boys of girls, public dress code checks for girls, a culture-wide tolerance of hallway groping, and ultimately rape. The credo is moxie girls fight back, and they do. So the book really takes place in a very specific culture, which is... Texas high schools. And then in the movie adaptation, it's kind of like more generic. So uh, the movie 
adaptation you can find on Netflix. It stars Hadley Robinson and Amy Poehler, who I believe is also a producer. That um, sounds like it could be uh, like a, a TV series. I mean, a, a different adventure every week where the girls win. Yeah, I mean, it's really a the movie kind of expanded on Me Too themes and, you know, sort of took the book and kind of ran with it, making it more for everyone than rather for the people that happen to attend this high school in this town. And it's really about girls just deciding we're done tolerating, you know, this kind of sexism. And it's really tricky because Young girls who are growing up and growing into themselves want to be pretty, they want to be attractive, they want to be alluring, and that th those yearnings are meshed with the sort of uh, toxic masculinity that exists in high schools where macho boys are celebrated on the on the gridiron as modern day gladiators and they can do what they wish to do with young girls who kind of fawn at their feet and so this con this conflict between a girl wanting male attention then and and, and not wanting the wrong kind of male attention is is endlessly gripping and fascinating and you know how do young women decide to address it and this is how these young women addressed it with these zines that were empowering. So the movie adaptation, I didn't think it was great, but it's definitely worth a watch. And Amy Poehler is always adorable. And she plays like the cool mom. And so her daughter feels like she can follow in the footsteps of her mom and like maybe push push things further in terms of women's rights. But then there's also this sense that her mom did all that and then kind of just got pregnant, had a child and sort of, I don't want to say the word gave up, but like things continue at this high school the way they were when her mom attended. And so there's that sense of like, are we doing enough and what more should society be doing? Nice. Well, you know, it's my mission because I was not a good reader when I was young to go back and read all of the books that I should have read as a young child okay. that would have given me a better basis for adulthood. You mean like the Bible? Yes, okay. the Bible. No, I, I don't want to go as far back as the Old Testament because it would take too long. But <laughs> anyway, uh, and, and one of those authors is George Orwell. And I'm in the midst of reading both of his masterpieces. One is Animal Farm and the other is 1984. Now, I, I'm, most clear thinking adults will have been exposed to this, but uh, I don't know if you want to have your memory refreshed. But this man was a genius. He, he was a writer. Uh, from England in the turn of the 20th century. And both Animal Farm and 1984 are essentially about the same thing, which is what happens if government is allowed to evolve into an authoritarian system of governance and uh, ultimately a totalitarian system of governance? What does that do to humanity? Well, in Animal Farm, uh, there is a point at which the animals overtake leadership of the farm and throw out the humans. And they built this sort of utopian society, which ends up not being utopian. In 1984, uh, that's the date that sort of uh, is the is the concept in this book of where they think they would be in this totalitarian form of government. Uh, and it's frightening and interesting and not too far off our current sort of 
low-grade authoritarian bent, not only in the United States, but in European countries as well. And George Orwell wrote two of the most prophetic pieces about what happens if we allow these systems of thought to go forward and rule our lives. And I'm telling you, I'm really enjoying it much more than I thought I would. So have you finished both those books? I, I did Animal Farm and I'm halfway through 1984. Because you're a little bit late with your book report. Seriously. Yeah. I'm going to owe like $7,000 at the library on my overdue book page. Yeah. It's just, it's really, maybe it's fascinating how prophetic he was, or maybe he just understood enough about human nature and had studied history enough to know that these patterns just continuously repeat themselves because any type of balanced government is going to be difficult to maintain. The people that want to rise to the top of the of a government are not always altruistic people. It often can be these deviant sociopathic types of personalities that that kind of strive for leadership and then you tip out of balance really quickly. So what our founders attempted to do was to put so many checks and balances in place that it wouldn't tip so easily. But we are certainly giving it a go. So mm -hmm. yeah. it's scary. And, 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 you know, he had a little information to go on. This was an all philosophical or a dream sequence. He had the rise of the Bolsheviks in Russia to watch. He had World War One and where these uh, authoritarian uh, little pockets were starting to get some traction. And so uh, it, it was, I think this was his reaction to watching what seemed to be the future, particularly for Russia and some of the European countries. But I'll tell you, it will, it will snap you up because it's a really interesting look at where we are now, although slightly darker, obviously. And another really important lesson is pigs are smart. Pigs are really smart. Pigs were running the show, and the, and the boar was running the show, and the boar's name was Napoleon, which is very interesting. So name. another interesting classic book to read if you're uh, intrigued by how societies can go awry, and I don't know if you've read this one, Fritz, when we're talking about assigned reading, is Lord of the Flies. Absolutely. It's been a long time since I've read it, but amazing. So for me as a, as a woman and a, and a girl who read it, Lord of the Flies is about what happens when females are not in place in a culture to temper the... the <laughs> exactly. The, the behavior of <laughs> Testosterone young... poisoning. That's what yes, happens. Yes, they all die of testosterone poisoning. Uh, someone was crushed by a conch, I think, but you know, the rest... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of uh, interesting that and it's I think also a British writer William Golding wrote Lord of the Flies and he wrote it he really wanted to make a, a a statement also about class and culture because it's prep school boys who crash and so these prep school boys especially should know their manners and how to behave themselves but when there's no parents around and it's when it's just purely survival they devolve very quickly into animals. Wow. Well, it's uh, I recommend reading those old books because they'll have special resonance for adults. And then I want to talk about just one final thing, Weezy, if you'll permit me. Sure. The first two episodes of Genius, The Life of Aretha Franklin, dropped on Nat Geo TV this week. It stars Cynthia Erivo, the woman who did a spectacular job playing Harriet Tubman in the award-winning movie Harriet. Now, this woman took a lot of heat, or, or the directors and the production company took a lot of heat because Cynthia's British, 
And, you know, how can a British woman play Aretha Franklin? I, I hate that argument because it's acting. It's called acting. Find the person that delivers this character as well as they can. And in this case, she had to have the singing chops and has the singing chops. Unbelievable the job she does with all the classic Aretha songs. And this is another in that genius series on Nat Geo, and I've loved every one of them. The one previous to this was uh, Picasso starring Antonio Banderas, an amazing performance. And you really they, they really show the uh, you know the, the darkness in genius. And before that, the darkness and the genius that was Albert Einstein, uh, played by Jeffrey Rush, which was amazing. Oh, yeah. That one I saw. That that was really, really good. But I'll, I'll tell you, because you know I'm a huge fan of R&B music. Yeah. The In the first two episodes, the the one thing that just was so such a revelation to me was when Jerry Wexler had Aretha and her husband go down to... Marshall Shoals to fame studios in Marshall Shoals, where they'd recorded Wilson Pickett and all these famous people, Ray Charles. And she walks in there and finds out that every single one of the session players was white. She refused to believe that they could get as funky as she needed them to be. And then for the first two episodes, uh, they prove her wrong. And they, they ended up having this beautiful tight unit with these amazing songs. And I, I really loved it as a part of a, a piece of music history. Definitely. We'll check that out. Mm -hmm. And I have one more recommendation. I'm halfway through. Well, no, I think I'm just a third of the way through. I'm not good at math, but I think there's six parts and I've watched two. So is that a third? That's about right. All right. Good. This is not a show about math, so that's not a requirement. So it's on HBO Max and HBO. It's called Q colon Into the Storm. It's a six part documentary series from director Colin Holback and uh, executive producer Adam McKay. It charts a labyrinth journey to uncover the forces behind QAnon, spanning three years in the making and traversing the globe. The series follows filmmaker Holback as he investigates the movement fueled by conspiracy theories that has grown in scope and political sig significance, chronicling its evolution in real time and revealing how Q uses information warfare to game the internet, hijack politics, and manipulate people's thinking. Hoback gains unprecedented access to key players, including Jim and Ron Watkins, the father-son team behind the 8chan website, which Q calls home, explores their rivalry with Frederick Brennan, the original creator of the platform, and interviews Q-tubers, Q-debunkers, political operatives, and journalists who have been closely following the movement since it began in 2017. The series examines the connections between QAnon, President Trump, and political and ex-military operatives. It also explores QAnon's influence on American culture and politics and probes the consequences of unfettered free speech permeating the darkest corners of the internet. So there's this guy named Fred and he's <laughs> in a wheelchair and he has- He's the a, 4chan guy, right? He's an 8chan guy. He uh -oh. has this genetic condition where he's not going to grow very tall and his bones are brittle. So he winds up being- he, he starts a chant and then these, this father-son team that live in the Philippines named Ron Watkins and his dad, Jim, they invite Fred to come down. Like, we'll buy HM from you because it's hard to make money off HM because the thing is you can be anonymous and you can post whatever you want. So it's not going to get sponsors because the stuff they're posting is just so vile and aberrant that it's disturbing and no sponsor would want to be a part of it. 
So they say, no, we're interested in what you're doing. It's really great. And why don't you move down to the Philippines? And so, and they, they put him up in a nice apartment and he has a caretaker, which he needs because he has these disabilities. And I think, well, at the end of the first two episodes, they give you this kind of like doubt as to like who created Q and if the person who created Q is now no longer the person posting as Q. And so you kind of start to wonder, or like it's it's kind of laid out like a great mystery story in terms of like, did these three, are these three, uh, one of them Q or all of them Q or Q at different time periods? Because once Q became more and more powerful, there were maybe more and more people wanting to claim Q because even if you don't make money off of A-Chan, you can make money selling hats and t-shirts and all of this Q paraphernalia and there's a lot of money in Q at present. And so the thing is, it's also like incredibly disturbing what Q has done to our culture because there's a whole lot of people that believe things that are just abundantly untrue and unsafe. That's the thing that is the mystery to me, and I hope they address it in later episodes. If you just look at their one uh, mandate, which is Democrats are uh, sociopath, uh, child molesters uh, that eat people and uh, are doing the work of Satan, and Trump was sent by God to save us from all this— and I'm thinking to myself, how many people on the planet can suspend their disbelief enough to even buy into this thing? That's what scares me. Well, if you if you read Orwell, <laughs> you'll come to believe that, you know, whatever whatever Big Brother is pumping is what people are believing because it's mm -hmm. it's it's like religion in a lot of ways. And, you know, if you go back in time, thousands of years or even hundreds of years to a time, you know, before information spread very easily, you know, people could easily believe that the king speaks to God daily. And if we want to have corn, we better listen to the king. It, it, there's too much at stake. In other words, when you're starving, there's just too much at stake for you not to believe. And so in, in, in the Q universe, you create this scarcity, this kind of like perceived scarcity where there's only enough for so many people. And if other people come in from other countries, there won't be enough for me. And therefore we have to own the libs. And it can be, it can be cultural grievance. It can be any kind of grievance. But if you're predisposed to these grievances, then why wouldn't you believe that liberals eat babies because you're just giving me permission to hate them and I already hate them. Okay. But, but yeah, hate, I, I get the hate, but where does reason depart? You know, think about that. Are, are you trying to tell me that there wouldn't be any physical evidence of liberals eating babies other than in your twisted mind? I mean, isn't there a picture of that occurring somewhere? Isn't there a cell phone video of a liberal eating a child? I mean, there's no, you got to have a little proof for it. I can to promise you, reason. Fritz, I can promise you that on HN, there's a picture of a person eating a baby. There's crazy stuff on HN that I I couldn't personally look at. So uh, the other the other thing that that plays into it is that this is storytelling and fiction sells better than nonfiction in any bookstore. So and and fictional movies sell better than documentaries and in any 
movie store, which would be streaming media, but you get the point. This is fiction. Fiction's exciting. Fiction keeps you guessing. Fiction, when it's well, whoever is Q, is a great fiction writer. He creates not just fiction, but he involves you in the storytelling. So he lays clues. He lays out clues, and then he asks you to be a part of solving the mystery. So it's kind of like, you know, how lady sleuthing has taken, o- taken off on the internet mm-hmm. so that ladies get to not just ladies, but like mostly ladies love to solve murders online. So they're like Angela Lansbury, right? They love to be a part of solving the crime. So in in QAnon, you get to be someone that's needed. You're now you're so invested. You you've actually spent time trying to solve these riddles. So it's a it's a gamification of news that's more exciting than just Rachel Maddow telling you the truth. Yeah. Uh- The thing about it is, when is the jig up? Because Q, whoever that person is, or whatever group of people it is, have been making these predictions about uh, specifics in the Trump calendar. On this date, he's going to return to Washington and overtake the Democratic president and we'll be back to normal. He's done that, uh, you know, 10 or 20 times in the last couple of years, set these false targets that never come to fruition. And then when they don't come to fruition, what they do is twist the reasoning behind it to come up with an explanation about why it didn't happen. But I'm thinking, how, how long can you go, uh, you know, bending the bending reality with people? I mean, you can go forever because there's doomsday cults that, but I know people that have grown up believing that they're not going to ever graduate from high school because they've been told that on this date, the world is going to come to an end. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it has destroyed lives in the past. And it's these things are popular because they gives they give people something to hope for that's better than the life they've constructed for themselves on Earth. But after you've hoped five or six times and it doesn't happen, then when do you say, you know, let's go to another conspiracy? I think it's seven times. Oh, okay. that, that's the number when you're done. Okay. Like, let me check out Catholicism. What's up with those guys? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's scary, but we're still in that period of time where they are willing to suspend their disbelief and say, I mean, I don't know if, if a certain number of Q people have fallen out of that cult after Joe Biden was inaugurated as president because they were promised that, that he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And they really did go to great effort to ensure that he wouldn't be. Yep. They didn't. They spared no expense, and he still was. So, is Q still posting drops? This I do not know. Interesting stuff. If you're out there and you know, please write to us. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Fritz? That we should. No, be... ma'am. That was awesome. You gave them uh, a lot to chew on there. Yeah, I hope so. And. Now, when you're done with our show, watch uh, Ward Cleaver and Beaver before they were Ward and Beaver on a funeral commercial. Well, Fritz, I have delighted in speaking with you today about all these great options out there for us. There's so much to read and watch, and everybody should get busy doing it. And, and we ought to also want to say that if people have opposing viewpoints about some of this stuff or some additional facts about uh, items we've mentioned, we would love to hear from you. So reach out to us on social media. Yeah, send us all your baby eating pictures. We'll, um, mm. no. 
Is that tasteless? I can cut that part out. No, no, no. All right. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesca DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. We will see you along the media path.